A reading from the Word of God, Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in its hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of the Lord. Please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Studies show that people tend to grow happier as they get older, especially past 80 years of age. There are two reasons for this. The first reason 
is that, and there's no easy way to say this, but the longer you live, the more tragedy and loss you've experienced. Life is a series of unfortunate events. The more you weather, the more adept you get at navigating. That's why when tragedy happens in our world or in your life, one of the best things you can do is sit down with an elderly person. You can be guaranteed that person will have tears in their eyes as they listen to you. They know what loss is like. You'll have that discussion, you'll pour your heart out, and then the elderly person will be saying something like this, which helps to refocus everything. Hey, tell me about my grandkids. And then they'll say something like this. Show me what love means again. This is our Leon Maxwell, soon to be 99 years old. He has led us well in love, in loss, in wisdom. Second thing, why people tend to grow happier as they get older, is they have learned a discipline of contentment. They've learned, and I think we learn as we get older, to focus our emotional energy more on things we have and less on things we don't have. You know, there's a whole branch of psychology now. I, I was listening, uh, Drew Pryber and one of our leadership grads uh, sent me the Hidden Brain podcast. Perhaps some of you listen to the Hidden Brain. And the Hidden Brain was talking about there's in Harvard and Princeton whole psychological departments now uh, on this idea of scarcity. This, the psychology of scarcity means that our brain seems to be wired to focus on the things we don't have more than the things we do have. So we often have to retrain our brains with a certain discipline of contentment to focus more on the things we do have as opposed to the things we don't. I mean, we've all kind of experienced that. You don't have enough time, what do you focus on? How much time you don't have? Don't have enough money, what do you focus on? How much money you don't have? And it tends to be obsessive, and when it's obsessive, what happens is it pushes the good things out of our life that we really don't want to lose, but because we're so focused on what we don't have, we risk losing them. Scarcity. Scarcity is the idea of focusing on what we don't have to the exclusion of what we do. I think that's why the book of Revelation was given to the church. To help us be scarcity resistant. To help us focus on the things we do have rather than the things we don't have. So in a moment, I want to unpack that as we look at the penultimate scenes before we get to heaven. So two things. One... First, I just want to thank you, Nick and I, from the bottom of my heart for enduring revelation with us. And I promise that next week we'll be in heaven. Those that endure to the end will be saved. Thank you for gutting it out. This is, you know, revelation, I would contend, is the hardest scripture in the whole Bible. And you've wrote it with us. It hasn't been easy, and I know in your small groups... There's been good discussion and hard discussion. But I want to affirm you for gutting it out. Thank you. 
The other thing I want to ask you to do, the introverts in the room now are going to groan and feel free, but I want you to again to ask your neighbor this question. As you, uh, I want you to answer it for yourself. Don't ask your neighbor. Uh, you tell your neighbor the an- your answer to this question. I just blew that whole thing, but here we go. <laughs> I want you to answer this question and share your answer with your neighbor. As I grow older, I am getting happier or crankier. Share that with your neighbor. Now, your spouse and friends can't answer that for you. Do you think you're getting happier or crankier as you get older? Go ahead. (laughs) That's good, Nick. (laughs) All right. How many of you are getting happier as you get older? All right. And how many of you are bold enough to say, I'm getting crankier as I'm getting older? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with some of you that I see out there for sure. So (laughs) I would agree. (laughs) How does Revelation help us become happier and not crankier? How does Revelation help us become scarcity resistant? Well, let's look at the first scene. Here's our structure for the morning. We're going to look at two scenes, the millennium. And secondly, the great white throne judgment, two huge scenes in the book of Revelation. And then at the end, I want to ask two major questions for you to wrestle with. So two scenes and two questions. Scene one, the millennium. Here it is, uh, verses one through three. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan. Just a pause here. <laughs> no mistaking who's being talked about in verse 2, right? No mistaking. All right, we'll come back to that. And bound him for a thousand years. There's the millennium. Thousand years. Satan bound. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. So the text goes on. In six verses, we have this phrase, a thousand years, repeated six times. Six verses, six times, a thousand years. What's, it, what's going on? What does it mean? What is the thousand years? We call it the millennium. Well, first I'd like to talk about uh, when we think the millennium happens and that's where the great debate is the when when does the millennium happen and then I'd like to after that circle back and talk about what the millennium means why it's in the text so there are three different views and by the way this uh, arguably uh, I don't know if it's the most popular section of revelation but it certainly has gotten the most ink people trying to figure out what the millennium is and so there are basically three views let's walk through them there is the premillennial view, there is the postmillennial view, and there is the amillennial view. And I know some of you are already asking, why does this matter? Well, hold on with me. I, I do think it matters, and I want you to at least be familiar with the terms. Now, you have to know that the reference point for the terms is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when we say premillennial, we're saying pre, before, that the second coming comes before the thousand years. 
So you see, the first coming is when Jesus came to Bethlehem, died on the cross, resurrected. Now we're in the church age, and then at some point, Jesus is going to come back again. Now, we want to acknowledge that there are different views on the second coming. Some are saying that you back up from the second coming seven-year period of tribulation and a pre-tribulation rapture. That could be argued from 1 Thessalonians 4. We want to acknowledge that. But a lot of us are post-trib, which means the tribulation has occurred throughout the church age and gotten intensively worse, that there is a second coming. And Satan will be bound. I'm sorry, keep, I'm still rambling on about the premillennial. Satan is bound a thousand years. Satan is released to give him one more try. He's like a snake with his head cut off that gets in the house and flails around and damages the furniture. But at the end, he will be cast into the burning lake of sulfur. Satan will be done. Now, one comment. There are within the premillennial camp those who think the thousand years is literal. You know, not 999, not 1,001. A thousand years. They take it very literal and that Jesus will, the, the, at the second coming, the first resurrection, all the dead Christians and, and, and uh, Jews uh, from the Old Testament will be raised up, their bodies raised up, and they will reign with Christ uh, for that thousand years. There are others in the premillennial camp who think the thousand years is like other numbers in Revelation, one of those suspiciously tidy numbers. That's not literal in, in terms of a thousand years duration, but it, it symbolizes complete control. Ten times ten times ten. Ten is a number of control in Revelation. So this is complete and utter control over the devil. You get to choose whether you think it's a symbol or it's a literal a statistic. All right, post-millennial. Post-millennial, this camp believes that Jesus came, the first coming, and then when he went back to heaven, he launched the church age. At some point during the church age, Satan will be bound. And when he's bound, the earth will get better and better and better from people preaching the gospel, from the church living out the kingdom. More and more people will come to know Jesus, become Christians, and the earth will be fully prepared, full peace all over the earth. And when that happens, Satan will be released but defeated uh, at the, and then Jesus will come at the second coming um, and the new creation. So understand here, post-millennial means the second coming comes after the thousand-year reign of Christ and that the millennium is part of the church age. Now, I would just say briefly about this view, probably the least popular view, uh, especially since 1914, which was the beginning of World War I. Before that time, many thought the world would get better and better and better and more people become Christians, but the 20th century kind of ruined that whole view, <laughs> post-millennial. In fact, uh, today, most of the post-millennials at Waterstone sit in this section over here, and there's no one, there's no one here. Either that or they're all on spring break, I'm not sure. But it's not a very popular view today. The last view is the all-millennial view. All is the Greek letter alpha, and when that's put in front of a word, it means no or none. So the all-millennial camp sees the first coming of Jesus. Satan was bound uh, at the cross, his powers limited, and thus the church age in which we live now and the millennium are the same thing. There's no distinction. So 
Premillennial, you know, it's after the second coming, there's a thousand years. Postmillennial, Jesus comes after the thousand years. In the amillennial view, there's no distinction. We are in the millennium, which is the church age. And at the end, Satan will be released, given one more try, but he'll be put down, thrown into the burning lake of sulfur at the second coming, and then the new creation. Those are the three views. You're probably wondering which view that I believe and I, I can speak for Nick we've talked about this we would come down in the premillennial view and I'll tell you why it's actually not much of anything that's in this text it's from most of the Old Testament you see why this is important is because how you choose if you're premillennial or amillennial affects how you read the Old Testament basically in this one thing do you believe that Israel has a future or that the church is now Israel? That's the key question. If you believe that Israel has a future, that at some point in the future they will be regathered again and God will begin to work again with Israel and create more history with them, you are a premillennialist. And that really impacts how you read the Old Testament. For instance, one of the key reasons I would come down in the premillennial camp is because of Ezekiel 37 to 48. And in Ezekiel 37 to 48, Israel is promised as they're going into exile that one day they will be regathered as a nation and they will even have a temple again. And so I, I think that God may have a future, some more history to make with Israel. And so I would espouse to a premillennial view. But you get to choose. I mean, let me talk through quickly the history of how this has played out in the church. And I think you'll find this very interesting. And it really gets to how Waterstone handles this kind of stuff when you, we get to make these choices. So around the time John is writing and receives the vision in Revelation, all the Jewish rabbis are premillennial. The Jewish rabbis of John's day believed that in the future, there would be a regathering of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. There were those rabbis who thought it would last for 40 days. There were other rabbis who thought the gathering would last for 7,000 years, one millennium for each creation day. So a wide spectrum of belief, but most all of them pre-millennial, that God will again gather the nation of Israel. So by the time that Jesus comes and we have the revelation, in the second and third centuries of church history, the early preachers were premillennial. Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Irenaeus, uh, Papias, all of the great preachers are premillennial. They believe that Israel will be gathered in Jerusalem for a period of time and then they will go into the eternal state together. What began to happen as that was preached hard, and this often tends to happen when you preach one doctrine to the exclusion of others, is that doctrine became aberrated. So there were those preachers who began to preach not only a premillennial kingdom, but during the millennial, it's going to be a prosperity gospel, and you'll get filthy rich. And there was one guy, Serinthius, who uh, John actually, I think, was writing the epistles of 1 John to counteract was a Gnostic. The Gnostic believes that whatever you did in your physical body doesn't count because God's spiritual. So it's only our spiritual thoughts and our spiritual sense that God cares about. doesn't care what you do in your body. Woo. You can see how the kingdom of God, thinking that it doesn't matter what you do with your body and you could get filthy rich because God will bless you, we would call that an aberration. <laughs> And so there was a pushback on that from the Orthodox preachers. You may have heard of this guy, Augustine. Augustine in the 4th century, along with Eusebius, pushed back hard on that and said, wait a minute, there's no millennium. 
And what you guys are preaching certainly isn't the gospel. So they started espousing an amillennial view. The amillennial believes that the church age and the millennial are the same thing. And from the 4th century of Augustine through the Middle Ages, through the Reformation, my two guys, my heroes, Luther and Calvin, amillennial, all the way until... Uh, you get this guy, another one of my heroes. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Have you heard of him? He, along with our founding fathers, had more to do with America than we realize in the Great Awakening. But Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and Charles Finney, three huge evangelists in the 16 and 1700s, they started preaching post-millennial. Why? Because there were revivals breaking out everywhere. At one time, it was believed that of the 13 American colonies, 90% of everyone who lived in the 13 colonies was a Christian. Can you imagine? They began to to think that this is really going to happen. We are going to preach the gospel, every nation is going to get saved, and we are going to bring the kingdom in. I would remind you, by the way, that this is how the modern missions movement was launched. William Carey and Hudson Taylor were post-millennial. But, as we said, they kept trying and trying, preaching, preaching, people getting saved, but then the 20th century happened. We had two huge world wars, and in the 20th century, there were more people killed in the name of Jesus than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Things don't seem to be getting more kingdom-like. In our society. I mean, do you think things are getting better or worse? Thus, in around the mid 1800s, a, a Christian movement called the Plymouth Brethren began to preach dispensationalism and premillennialism, and that has exploded through evangelism the last 200 years through evangelical circles. And we read kind of their views in the, the, the uh, fictional series called Left Behind. And uh, all the great movies that have been made about the end of the world and the apocalypse, they're all premillennial, so we're in the cycle. Here's the point. Thank you for indulging me and listening to all that. I feel a lot better for sharing it. (laughs) I really worked hard on that. Thank you. Now, here's my point. Did you notice as we walk through the whole history of the millennium in the church that God seemed to bless each view so in the amillennial view what's emphasized is the lordship the kingship of jesus that he's on the throne there is a a huge reverence for jesus as king and that has impacted waterstone if you had to describe the theology of waterstone in one word what would it be kingdom we emphasize Jesus as king and kingdom. And we're premillennials. <laughs> but the amillennial views help us keep focused on Jesus shall reign. Jesus is on the throne. Did you notice the postmillennial views launched missionary movements and they're focused on the gospel? They believe that when the gospel is preached, people actually get saved. And God's hand was th- all through the postmillennial preachers of the day. And then There's the premillennial view, which I think emphasizes the end well. And even in our movies and in the books, and when when, um, premillennials preach the rapture, it gets people's attention. 
And the, the, the idea of preaching the rapture and, and having a view of the end spurs the church to holiness. So each movement has been beneficial to the church. Each movement. Now, we make our choices. I think the choices matter. It influences how you read the scriptures. But these choices should never divide the body of Christ. Jesus is grieved when his church is split off into all millennials and premillennials and postmillennials. He's grieved when we have the post-tribulation church and the pre-tribulation church. It's important to study. It's important to have your convictions. But it is wrong to divide the body of Christ over those convictions on these non-essential doctrines. Is anyone listening to me? Are you, are you hearing this? So, at Waterstone, we choose to agree on what we agree on. Jesus is king. The church is not a helpless victim on the stage of history. About the church, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail. And we choose to believe that the gospel is the most powerful news that any person can ever hear. And if it's received, it changes a human heart from the inside. We emphasize those things. Everything else is just good discussion over a cup of coffee. All right. What does the millennium mean? Here's what's interesting. If you go back to the text in verse 2 we pointed out that there's no mistaking who's being talked about here the dragon the devil the serpent satan make no mistake we're talking here about an apocalyptic cosmic smackdown of the devil notice he's identified with four names and then it says he's bound with a chain. And notice who does the binding. It's not Jesus. It's not the Father. They instead send an angel to bind the devil. That means a peer is called upon to bind the devil. You remember that devil was an angel and in heaven before he said, enough with you, God, I'm going to do it my way. And he fell and he became the devil. But initially he was an angel. So he's bound by a peer. This is a cosmic smackdown of the highest order, helping us understand that the devil is God's devil. The devil is doomed. The devil has only the influence and power that God allows in God's economy. The devil is doomed. So you have that, and then if you go to verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. That's literally the Greek word for axe. It means what it says. Heads chopped off. Because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or its image. They've resisted the devil and had not received its mark on their foreheads, their thinking, or their hands, their deeds. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Do you see the contrast? The devil is smacked down and doomed. 
the people who've suffered the most humiliating kind of death in the name of Jesus are raised up and reign with Christ for a thousand years. The purpose of the millennium is to vindicate the martyrs. We make no mistake about who wins. Which side wins? Here is how the millennium pushes scarcity from our lives. From the millennium, we understand that the king knows our losses. Anything we've lost in the pursuit and the name of Jesus, the king knows and the king will restore. That's what the millennium means. That's the first scene. The second scene is the great white throne judgment in verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The king and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. This is awesome God on the throne. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, even those uh, who died at sea. In the ancient world, it was often thought that you might have a different destiny if you died at sea because you were never buried. John clears that up for us. The point here is this. Anyone who dies not knowing Christ at the end of time will face God at his judgment seat and the books will be opened. So there's two symbols here that we need to mention. The first is the idea of throne. Throne here means the Almighty, the one who has made us, the one who has control and ownership over our life. A throne is a symbol of power and ownership. Ownership is the most important word for us. Ownership. What it means is that because God made us, we belong to God. And everything we have in our life, we've received. It's been given. And we will be accountable for how we've used what's been given. In other words, the ultimate issue of life is not who we are, but whose we are. Throne and books. The books are open. Uh, at the beginning of the Revelation series, we ask you uh, during a greeting time to write down the big questions you have about Revelation. And this question came up a lot. The question is, it sounds like from passages like this that Revelation teaches salvation by works, right? R recorded the deeds, what they've done, recorded in the books. Well, a clarification here. Notice there are two books. The one book is the book of life. And in Revelation, it's alluded to four times. In the other places, it's all actually called the Lamb's book of life written before the foundation of the world. Think on that. The idea is that in that book are all those whom God has prompted toward faith. And then believing, making that decision to follow Jesus, they are saved. Their lives completely trust Jesus. 
for their destiny. But notice in that book, it's names that are written, not deeds. Names. To the Hebrew mind, a name represented a life. And so the whole tenure of their life is that they trust Jesus. In the other book, it's deeds. And those are the ones who have not trusted Jesus with their life. And at the end of time, their books will be opened. And what better way to tell where a person's trust is than by what they have done? That reveals their heart, and God will give them what their heart wants. If it, I mean, it reveals that they've wanted to live without Jesus, wanted to live their own life, then God will give them their own life for all eternity. Those are the books. So, the two scenes in Revelation. The first, the millennium, means that God knows our losses and He will restore. The second image means that God knows our names and He will save. Now the two questions. Are you ready? First question. Do you believe Revelation 20 and verse 14? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What that verse means is Jesus wins. Death, Hades, the great enemies of humanity, evil, sin, it's all thrown into the lake of fire and done. Jesus wins. The ultimate goal of history is churning to that moment, that day, when Jesus wins and all our enemies are put down. Jesus wins. Holding on to that, what we have there, helps us when scarcity comes into our lives. Focusing on what we have rather than what we lose in this life as we follow Jesus. Jesus wins. Do you believe Revelation 2014? Well, here's a way to tell. The amount you believe Revelation 2014 that Jesus wins is directly proportional to the amount of despair you have in your life. Despair. Despair is the refusal to hope. Despair means believing the wrong things about God. Despair is the pit that we fall into when we stop believing that God is sovereign. Despair is the pit that we fall into when we stop believing that God has the last word on our lives. Resurrection. What's your level of despair? In fact, I thought it'd be good for us to do a bit of liturgy just to reflect on it. What this first question is after is our profession, our belief, our bringing the future into our present, which is what hope is, that Jesus shall reign. He reigns then and he reigns now. Jesus shall reign. So I thought if you want, let's do this little exercise. I'll make an announcement and then you make a pronouncement by saying out loud, Jesus shall reign. Ready? No matter what happens in the economy, 
No matter how many disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, fires, no matter who wins the election, no matter what laws are passed or struck down, no matter what disease or virus breaks loose, no matter how far the stock market rises or falls, no matter what any nation does or becomes. Now we pause to get very serious. No matter what your doctor says is wrong with your body. No matter what happens at your job. No matter what decision your kids make. No matter what you hear in the news tomorrow. Jesus knows your losses and Jesus knows your name. That's the first question. Do you believe Revelation 2014 that Jesus wins? Second question. Do you believe Revelation 2015? Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It is my duty to inform you that Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the Father's heart and love incarnate, preached more about hell than anyone in Scripture. He spoke of both heaven and hell as places where all wrongs will be made right. He spoke of hell as God's creation, not the devil's home. He spoke of hell because he has not become apathetic about the seriousness of our world. Jesus' greatest effort was to warn people to take God seriously. But here's what's interesting. Most of the time when Jesus preached about hell, he was speaking to people who already followed him. When he was with the large crowds and the masses, he rarely spoke about hell. When he was with his followers, he often spoke about hell. Why? Because I think it's assumed that people who follow Jesus and know about hell will love their neighbors enough to encourage them to take God seriously. Is that a good assumption at Waterstone? July 4th, 1854, 
a man named Charlie Peace was walking out to the gallows in Great Britain to be hung. He was a convicted murderer. Beside him walked an Episcopal priest who was reading the last rites. And one of the lines in the last rites was this. Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. At that moment, Charlie Peace interrupted the priest and said, do you believe that? And again, the priest, to the priest, Charlie Peace said, do you believe that? The priest was kind of taken aback, and he stuttered, and he said, I suppose, I suppose I believe that. And Charlie P. said, well, I don't. But if I did, I would crawl on my hands and knees throughout every road of Great Britain paved with shards of glass to rescue one person from that experience. So I guess all of this comes to this. Either God is or he is not. If he is, every human being which the Almighty has made will give account for the life they've been given. For that accounting, we have two options. The first option is to stand before God based on everything we've done in this life. Standing on our goodness and hoping it's good enough. That's the first option. Stand on everything we've done. The second option is to stand on everything Jesus has done and given to us. I'm standing on option two. I know that for me, option one is not good enough. I'm standing on option two. Where do you stand? A moment of reflection. You and God. And then I'll pray. First of all, Jesus, thank you for being our Savior, our King, for being our Lion who puts down our worst enemies, puts down our death, our sin, our despair. You win. 
and we bring that future into our present, we have hope. Even in the worst days of our life, we know that's not the last word because you are the Lion of Judah. But we also worship you, Jesus, as the Lamb, the slaughtered Lamb, the one who came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And because you did that, Jesus, we can know you and we can live with you forgiven and forever. We praise you as the lion and as the lamb. And our prayer for everyone in the room today is that you now would break into every heart and every life with great clarity about this moment and about this decision. And help each one, Lord, to see you and to just simply say, I'm yours, Jesus. I'm yours. Whatever you want of me, whatever you ask of me, I'm yours. Move in our hearts, Father. We welcome you. Amen.